0: If you've got your Bibles, take them and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We've been in the midst of this series uh, on the book of Acts over the last two weeks. We've got two more weeks. It's just a, a short series as we walk through some of what happened at the beginning of the early church with the specific focus on how we can be a part of an even greater movement for the cause of Jesus Christ. And We've based this on a passage of Scripture, a verse that comes from the book of John. And in the book of John, Jesus has his disciples around. He's talking to them about leaving. He's talking to them about going. And they're very anxious about that, very nervous about that. And he says to them, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And so he looks at them and says, if you follow me, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, That you will do what I do. But more than that, he says, and he, that's the who believes, the one that believes, will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've talked about what does that look like? What does that mean? What does he mean that we'll do even greater works? And we talked, it's really twofold. One is, there will be more, that will be spread out more. It's not just centralized to a central figure in Galilee, but that because of the Holy Spirit living, residing in those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, that the message and the power can go literally to the ends of the earth. But secondly, it also means that some of what we do will be greater. And so last week we prayed this prayer together, and I ask you to pray it over the next few weeks. If you're a part of First Baptist Goodlest if you're not a part of First Baptist Goodlest you're more than welcome to pray this. But this is what we're praying for our church, what we're praying for our lives, is that God would awaken our affections so that we obey your spirit and surrender to your mission. What I want to do today, Jeff mentioned the invite your one, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, about a special day we have in a couple of weeks that we want you to invite people to come to church with you. But what I want to do today is I want to look at one individual. That entire story of Scripture is told in two chapters. And in those two chapters, we see what it looks like for someone to live a life that is magnifying the Lord, that is pointed towards God, that is what God intends for it to be. He's someone whose heart has been turned towards God, his affections have been raised towards God. He's obedient to the Spirit of God and he surrendered to the mission of God. In Acts chapter 6, we see his story begin to unfold in verse 1 of chapter 6 as a problem arises in their community. Now, just to give you a little background, we talked about in Acts chapter 1 and 2 that 3,000 were added to the church that day. By the best we can estimate, or just reading and doing the numbers that happened in the first few weeks of the church until we get to Acts chapter 6. By this time, about 10,000 people were a part of the church in Jerusalem. 10,000 people in one city. Now, just to give you a little perspective, the entire city probably had a population of somewhere around 40,000 during this time. So in just a few weeks' time, one out of every four people in their city had become a follower of this Jesus. Now, you can imagine the turmoil that's kind of going on because the first uprising that happened is suddenly this Jesus character comes onto the scene. This man called himself the Son of God. And they have this uproar that happens. He throws things in the temple. People are saying he's the Messiah. The crowd turns on him. He's crucified on the, one of the biggest festivals they have during the year. Uh, 40 days later, uh, people are starting to pray and think about it. 50 days later, somebody comes out and said, he's alive. We've seen him. Y'all have seen him. And now you put your trust in him. 3,000 the first day, by the end of the first few weeks, by the first couple of months, you've got 10,000 people or one-fourth of the people that are living in that city are suddenly following a new direction. Now, to give you the kind of idea of what kind of impact that would be for Goodlettsville, all right, now I know a lot of you don't live in Goodlettsville, but this area, if you just look at a map of our area and a 10 to 15 mile radius around our church, there are somewhere between 400 and 500,000 people that live here. So just imagine that between now and Christmas that a new church starts and 100,000 people join, like in three months. Do you think there'd be people wondering what in the world is going on, right? Imagine here at this church, if we added 99,500 members in the next three months. Some of you are like, that ain't happening. I'd lose my seat, and I ain't losing my seat, all right? Like, we would be in more than two services. There would be disruption in this area. There had been a major disruption because of this new movement that were followers of Jesus. In fact, nothing like it's ever happened before. Scholars, not Christian scholars, people that are just historians have said, a guy named Kenneth Scott Lederet, who is a history professor at Yale, Now, I don't know if you know this or not. Yale is not the bastion of Christian education, right? It is not a stronghold for Christian higher education. But this is what he says. Never, and he's a historian, so he doesn't use that word lightly. Never, in so short a time, has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious political or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. It has exploded onto the scene. And the question is, how and why did it move so quickly? I think we see an example of how and why through the life of this guy named Stephen. Now, when you think of the great people of the New Testament, Stephen may not be the first name that comes to mind. But the truth is, his impact is far greater than the amount of space he gets in the book of Acts. Now, there's one principle that drives Stephen's life that I think we're going to see as we look through this passage, and it's simply this, that Stephen did not live his life for himself. His life was continually focused on, outside of him chapter six verse one in those days as the number of disciples was multiplying y'all know what multiplying is right right like not like one plus one plus one but two times two there arose a complaint by the hellenistic jews against the hebraic jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution now here's the deal we read that and we don't see what's really behind it because we just read it as some widows weren't getting their food. But this is a major crisis point for the early church. It's a dangerous problem for a couple of reasons. First, is because division has started to creep into the church. And secondly, because that division is along racial lines. Now one of the things that we see even in our culture, even like today, is that the most difficult issues to solve and the most volatile issues are often divisions down racial lines. This isn't just a couple of older ladies aren't getting the food, they thought. This is Hellenistic Jews saying, we're not getting what we're supposed to get. Our widows aren't receiving what they're supposed to receive. And it's because we're Hellenistic, not Hebrews. Now, here's what that means. Hellenistic just means they had a Greek background. Hebraic means they had a Jewish background. They're both Jews, but their backgrounds are a little different. And so this is kind of like, honestly, this is Caucasian followers of Jesus and African-American followers of Jesus. They both are there. They're both following Christ. They both want to live for him. But their backgrounds are a little different there are a couple of issues that really show you that this could be a major thing. First of all is they assign motives to the actions without understanding what's really going on. It says that the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. In other words, they assume the Hebrews are leaving them out because of racial or social or economic reasons. Secondly, they never brought this to the apostles. They murmured about it among themselves. They just talked about it amongst themselves. Even though the apostles were who they were mad at, they talked about it with each other. They didn't go to the apostles. They didn't say, hey, listen, we just got a question. We wonder if you could help us explain to us, how, did the, how is it that our, our widows aren't getting the food they're supposed to get? They just assume they don't like us. They don't want to be around us. It's because we're a different race. It's because we're a different culture. They don't want us. Aren't you glad that in churches today people don't still do that? When they get mad at somebody and they talk about it with their small group or their Sunday school class. Or they talk about it with their friends or they talk about it over the phone or they chat about it or they send text messages about it and they never go to anybody that is really who they're concerned about. Now listen, this is a significant threat for the early church. And it's a significant threat for any church. Nothing is used by Satan more to destroy a church than distrust and resentment within the church. It's the third time Satan has attacked the church in Acts. In Acts chapter 4, everything gets going, everything gets moving. In Acts chapter 4, he sends government persecution to try to squelch what's happening, and the church continues to grow. In Acts chapter 5, he has an embellishing embezzling hypocrite who tries to lie about what he's giving to the church and he tries to destroy the church through that way and God removes that leader Ananias and the church continues to prosper as it says the disciples are multiplying and so he goes to another tactic which has often been his greatest tactic and he tries to divide the church by scrumbling and distrust and backbiting it worked with Israel he thinks why won't it work with these people and this is a side note. We ain't even gotten to the sermon really yet, but I want to tell you this. That nothing kills more churches than grumbling and complaining. Nothing kills the witness of more churches than people that get upset and don't talk to people about why they're upset. They talk to other people not concerned with the problem about who they're upset with and why they're upset. And here's the truth. Scripture claims, Scripture, scripture states, that if you speak evil of your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially within the local body of believers of which you are a part, and especially when you judge their motives, you are being used as a tool of the enemy of God to help disturb division in his people. Two rules. Always give people in the church, in life, give people the benefit of the doubt about their motives. Can I tell you one of the things? You know, when you when you decide you're going to be a pastor, it's not like you it's not like I just decided, hey, one day woke up and thought, Whoa, I think I'll just be a pastor. Like you feel called to this. This is what God's called me to do. And when you do that, there are some expectations you have, some things that you believe, some things that you hope, some things that you think will happen. But one of the things that has surprised me over my fifteen years is the number of times in my ministry when people assign motives to my actions that were never motives in the first place. Well, he didn't speak to me. He must not like me or care about me or he doesn't want to help me or he likes other people better than us or he's trying to get me out of the church or he well, He said this from the pulpit in his sermon. That means he was speaking directly to me and he was really getting on to me and I don't appreciate that. What, what, what are you talking about? I remember early on in my ministry, it happened with Susan and I both. There was a lady that came and visited our church and she, she said, I said something to her, and Susan said something to her that both of us were trying to run her off from the church. And she started telling everybody she knew that that, that new pastor's running us off. And I was like, what? I, what are you talking about? And then I see my own life, and I think in my own life, how many times have I done the same thing? Give people the benefit of the doubt. Secondly, when you have a problem, go straight to the source. Nothing sows disharmony like talking about an issue you have with someone with other people. All right, that's free. That wasn't part of it. All right. Just a side note. So here's what happens. They come, complaints arise, verse 2. Then the 12, that's the apostles, that's the core group. That's the leaders. That's the, the people that are in charge. They summon the whole company of the disciples. I mean, we're trying, we're talking about here, what we understand from scripture is they got as many people as they could together. You're talking about thousands of people, alright? And said, it's not right for us to give up preaching to handle financial matters. Now, there's a whole other discussion about pastor responsibilities and what's happening here. We're not going to get into all that today. But they say, listen, our job, and they'll say this in a second, is to teach the gospel and to pray. And that is our job. We can't be concerned with all this other stuff. One of the things that's happened in churches today across the nation is when you ask congregations their expectations about what a pastor should be, what they should be good at, The last one I saw from the Barna group was there were over 35 things that churches said their pastor ought to be really good at. 35 different things. And we'll talk about why that's detrimental to the church in a few minutes. But the apostles said the only thing we can do right now, and granted, the church is exploding, the only thing we can do right now is teach the gospel and pray. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. It goes on. The proposal pleased the whole company. They're all excited about it. And so they chose Stephen. First time we see his name, Stephen. A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit and Philip and a lot of other Greek names that are hard to pronounce. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Not Pumbaa, but Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. There is significance, by the way, in all those Greek names. Because Hellenist meant that they were of Greek background. Those were the ones that complaining. The people they elevate to new leadership status are all Greek. They are diversifying. All the apostles would have been Hebraic. They are diversifying their leadership team with these seven guys. But here's what I want you to notice about Stephen. It tells us right off the bat. Remember, the requirement was they had to be good reputation and they'd be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And it tells us Stephen. Stephen's the only one that gets an extra explanation. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Here's one of the things I want you to see as we talk about Stephen throughout this day, as we look over these two chapters about his life. There is a reverence from the writer Luke and from the apostles about Stephen because of the way he gave his life. For the cause of Jesus Christ. And so every time they mention Stephen, there's a little disclaimer about him. Here, it's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on top of him. So they said to him, Listen, this is what we got. We got you guys. We've set you apart. We want you to do this. We want you to wait on tables. Look at verse 7. So the preaching about God flourished. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So here's what happens. I love this. Satan tries to stop the church in chapter 4 through government persecution. The church multiplies. Satan tries to stop the church in chapter 5 by an embezzling hypocrite. The church multiplies. Satan tries to stop the church through disunity in chapter 6 and the church multiplies. Jeff talked earlier about what's happening in China, what's happening in Asia, what's happening in Africa. What's happening in a lot of those places is the government is trying to restrict Christianity and Christianity is multiplying in the face of persecution. And what we see here is simply this. There's a problem, they're not getting their food. We got to do something about it. Here are seven guys Go work. And it shows us the first thing I want you to see in Stephen's life. And if you've got something to write down, write this down. That true Christian service begins with humble service. True Christian commitment begins with service through humility. The core of Christian commitment is service. Stephen is introduced to us as one of the seven servants. His job was not glorious. He waited tables for widows. We find out later he's a capable leader. He's a good public speaker. He's a good theologian. He's a preacher. But he didn't say well, you need us to serve tables. I think I would be better served if you'd let me teach a little bit. I'll be glad to do it if you'll give me the opportunity to speak. It's just the church had a need and Stephen stepped up and filled it. And that service, though seemingly insignificant, had a huge effect on the church. Seemingly insignificant service had a huge effect on the church. It began to multiply. And it tells us, especially among the priests, you're like, why does it mention the priests? There were other groups that were coming to faith. It mentions them for two reasons. First of all, they were antagonistic in Jesus. They helped lead the charge to get Jesus killed. And if a large number of them are coming to faith, something significant has happened to change their minds. And the second thing is not only are they given their antagonistic toward Jesus, they were the people in charge of taking care of the poor in their community according to Jewish law. And I believe that the way that the church was taking care of each other and the poor in the community began to send signals to the priest that this is for real and they are taking care of each other and I want to be a part of that. Francis Schaeffer said, the love of the church is the church's most effective witness. And that's my desire as a church is to be a place where we just humbly serve one another and the community and the area around us. Now, let me say this. As a church, you all are great at this. Man, you're great at this. I just think back over my nine years and the number of times that I've come to the church and just said, hey, here's a need. We really need help. And you just go over and above. I mean, just recently, we do the paper drive in August for the women's prison. Geraldine always has it every year. We don't make a huge deal about it. We put the things out there. We put it on the screen. We mention it a couple of times. And you gave 100 packs more than was necessary. Every woman in the women's prison is getting a pack of paper from us. And they have enough to give to anybody that comes in in the next year. You think, well, that's, a big, that's the only thing they have to write on for the year. Mentioned Goodness Elementary, and I've already had people come to me um, that are giving, donating, looking to help with elementary and middle school. You always are people that do what needs to be done. We, we are going to be the drop-off center for Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes in this area this year. And part of the reason for that is because we have been the church. When the other church wasn't able to do it anymore, they called us and said, you know, because we're one of the biggest givers of shoeboxes. We have women every month that go to the next door ministry. We have men that every month drive to Lynch, Kentucky, sometimes multiple times a month to help people out. You as a church are great at that. we got people right now, you don't know this. We got church members, some of you know this, but a lot of you don't know this. We got church members right now at this moment In a brand new worship service for a church that is having their first worship service in Las Vegas, Nevada. In fact, I got a picture this morning. We got that. All right. So there's Randy. I asked for a picture of Randy and Lisa, and Lisa sent me Randy and Phil. That's my father in law. But there's a brand new church starting today called the Well Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. And Randy, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my father-in-law said, hey, we need some help putting cabinets up. And the best guy I know to work for that kind of stuff is Randy Brooks. So he called Randy and Lisa said, y'all want to go to Las Vegas? They said, Sure. We'll go to Las Vegas. Randy, I need you. And Lisa said, if you're going to Las Vegas, Randy, I'm going to Las Vegas. And so they, they loaded up on a plane last Friday. They have literally planned this three weeks ago. Got on a plane Friday. Have spent the weekend getting that building in a strip mall ready for the first worship services. And at this moment right now are worshiping with the Well Church in Las Vegas in their first ever worship service. Just people like, hey, listen, I, I want to help. This is what I want to do. But here's the thing. You're great at it. But the name of the series isn't just great. I want to be even greater. I want to be a church that's known as a church that loves each other and loves our community. I want every Sunday school class to have a project where they are working together to do something in this community for the glory of God and to help our neighbors. And the truth is that we can't be an effective church Unless every single person is involved. We can't be. We can't be a healthy, thriving church. Unless every single person is involved. You say, well, what what does that mean? Where do I need to get involved? I'll tell you three ways to figure out where you need to get involved. First of all, ask, what am I good at and how can it help? Secondly. What am I passionate about, and where can I help? And thirdly, where do they need help? Can I tell you this? I do not believe Stephen was passionate about serving tables for widows. He was a preacher. We're going to see that in a second. That's not what he's passionate about, but you know what he said? It needs to be done. The church needs it. I'm going to not think about myself or what I might get from it or attention I may get. I'm just going to do it. Scripture says that we as a congregation... If one of you is not doing what you've been called to do, you are harming the entire community. I just finished reading a boat that I loved. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's called The Boys in the Boat, and it's about the 1936 Olympic eight-man rowing team. Now, here's a picture of them right here. Uh, 1936, you can tell they won the gold medal. They won the gold medal in Berlin in a race that was rigged for the Germans to win, because if you know anything about history, 1936 Berlin, a guy named Hitler was in charge and he rigged most of the Olympics for them to win. And they outdid the Germans and won the rowing competition now they're, they're, these are all guys from the state of Washington a lot of them were guys that grew up in the woods or not good situations the book is mainly about a guy named Joe Rance who grew up with a family where his mom died when he was young and his dad kicked him out of the house when he was like 15 years old he would have to work the entire summer just to make enough money to go back to school at Washington where he was a part of the rowing crew with all of these guys in fact, one summer, he heard news that they were building a big dam at the Grand Coulee. And so he went there just to see if he could get work. And that summer, he worked strapped to a wire that would swing out from the top of the dam with a jackhammer. And he would jackhammer the face of the dam, push himself off, go to the next spot, and do it again all day long just so he could go back to Washington to Rome. The guy that was not their coach, but a very important part of their team was a a guy named George Podock, and he grew up in England, as far away from the woods of Washington as you can imagine. He grew up on the Thames River, his his family was Oxford-trained in rowing. His job was he built the boats and helped to put the teams together. I'm reading this book, and it's this fascinating story. And you get to the middle part of the book, and there's this whole section about what makes a good team. And this is what he says. He says, every team that has ever been good, and by the way, this team is considered possibly the greatest rowing team in the history of the world. He said, every team that's ever been good has a couple of components. First of all, they're all completely different. He said, you can't have the same guy at every seat. There are eight seats. Every seat has to have a different kind of guy. He said, if you get all just big, burly, bust guys, they're all going to end up fighting and tipping the boat over. If you get a bunch of little guys, they're all going to scrap and fight hard. They're going to go far, but not very fast. He said, in every seat, you have to have a different guy. He said, but this is the case. When they all get in that place, when they're all completely different, when the race starts, they have to pull as if they're one person. As I'm reading that, I think... He's been reading 1 Corinthians 12, where it says that we are one body formed of many members, worked together, and that what has to happen for a church is that we have to serve one another and the community as if, even though we are completely different, every time we're pulling the oars, we are pulling as one. And what you see in Stephen's life is he's introduced to us as that guy that just pulled his weight. This is what Scripture says about Steve. We have to go back to where we were a minute ago, Steve. To verse 51, where it says, he teaches, um, right here it says, Stephen, full of grace and power. Notice how every time it says Stephen, it gives us a disclaimer, right? Full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen is just serving tables. And as he's serving tables, he's sharing about God, as he's sharing about God, God is blessing and people are coming to faith. That gets him in trouble. The people start to um, get mad about him. The leaders, the religious leaders get mad. And they pull him before him. Stephen, layman, not an apostle, not a priest, just Stephen, gets called before the authorities. And these are the same authorities that had Jesus killed. And they basically say, explain yourself. And Stephen gives the longest sermon in the book of Acts, which I am not going to read right now. And God's people said, Amen. Some of you are like, go ahead and read it. Well, you can. Go back and read chapter 7, all right? But he does this whole thing, and his point basically is twofold. First of all, he tells them, you've resisted every prophet that's come until you resisted the last one, Jesus, and he's the most important. And secondly, you can't save yourself and the law can't save you. You've got to do something about it. But here's where I want to end. I want to show you where it comes to him. In chapter 7, verse 51, if you've got your Bibles open or you're, you're on your smartphones, go there. Chapter 7, verse 51, he says this to them, all right? This is his invitation. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which of the ones did they give a free pass? None of them. And then he goes on to say this. They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have become. This is not a seeker-friendly invitation. Right? And then he says this to end it. You receive the law under the direction of angels and you have not kept it. He's what he says to him. Basically, he calls him stiff neck. Now, that is not a positive term. OK, he's not like, well, you are a bunch of stiff neck people. Aren't you all glad about that? Like that is not a popular term. What that means is you are a group of people that will not change. I read this week one of my favorite Uh, It's an illustration I've heard before. I may have used before, but I love the illustration. It's from a pastor in North Carolina named J.D. Greer who um, talked about going to a leadership conference one time. And as he was at the leadership conference, um, he said, the atmosphere, J.D. said, I grew up conservative Baptist. That was my background. He said, this particular church was not conservative nor Baptist. He said they had really wild, wide aisles for people to run up and down and shout and scream and dance. He goes, which is, you know, nothing wrong with that, but that's not me. And he said at the end, the pastor said, I need everybody that's in leadership position in a church to come forward. I'm going to pray over you and bless you. J.D. Greer said he was watching and he said every person he prayed over, he would put his hands on and they all fell out. J.D. Said I, I, he said, I just said to the Lord real quick, I said a prayer real quick, and I said, Lord, if you want me to fall out on this floor and start shaking and have Jesus tattooed on my chest, I will do it. But I'm not going to let that man knock me down. Okay? And so as the guy came down the row, he got to J.D. Greer, and he said, this is back when I was a little more stubborn than I am now. He put his hand on me, and he started to pray. And he said, the more he prayed, the more forceful the hand got. And he said, I decided I was going to push back. And so as he pushed on my head, he said, I got my neck as stiff as it could be. And I pushed back into his hand and just said, you're not pushing me down. He said, the guy prayed over me, pushing, pushing. And finally he left. And he said, as he walked to the next guy, he just went, you stiff necked son. He's like, I didn't mind that then. But they minded it when, Jesus, when uh, Stephen said it to him about Jesus. And then he calls him almost something vulgar. You uncircumcised of the heart. He tells them. The truth has come to you. You didn't want it. You didn't listen to it. You didn't obey it. You are the people that God has entrusted with the truth of his word. You are the people that are supposed to be leading other people. And you have failed your people. You say you want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Right? It's that moment. You can't handle it. And when they heard these things, they were quickened in their heart and excited about what he had to say. Is that what it says? No. It says when they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. Now, here's what I want you to see, okay? You're about to see something absolutely remarkable happen. But I want you to understand that in the book of Acts and in the New Testament and in the history of the church, God uses ordinary Christians To do extraordinary things. I use the word ordinary in air quotes because we're all ordinary. One of the things that's happened in the church is that somehow we've got this idea that the ministers, the staff, the leaders, the Sunday school teachers do the ministry and everybody else just kind of is here. And that couldn't be farther from a New Testament understanding of the church than anything you could do. And here's the problem with it, twofold problem. First of all, it it does cause burnout among pastors and staff members and Sunday school teachers and people get tired, and that happens because there are expectations on them that cannot be fulfilled. But secondly, it robs the power of Jesus' statement that we will do greater things because there aren't as many people doing what Jesus has called us to do. And if we're going to change this country, if we're going to change this city, if you're going to change your environment for the cause of Christ, it's going to be you doing what God called you to do. You will have a much greater chance to impact our culture for the cause of Jesus Christ than I will. In this part of the country, when people hear I'm a pastor, they immediately put their, oh, my grandmother used to be Baptist. My cousin's a Baptist. But you work next to people every day that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, need to see it lived out, need to understand what it means. When you do that, the world is completely befuddled by Christians that are doing what they're supposed to do. Man, I like that word. When's the last time you used befuddled? You know what it means. Like, they're confused. They don't know what to do with us. When you're kind and gracious and speak the truth in love, they don't know what to do. They knew what to do with Stephen. So Stephen is there. The word continues to increase. Things are happening to him. They're majorly he owed at him at the moment And verse 55 says but he Stephen filled with the Holy Spirit every time they mention Stephen he's got a disclaimer filled with the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said look I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God next verse Then they screamed at the top of their voices. So Stephen is just looking up, going, I see heaven open, I see Jesus standing before me, I see the glory of God. And they are tired of it. And so they literally put their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 as loud as they can. And they run after him, they grab him, they threw him out of the city and began to stone him. Now listen, this is not like pick up a little rock and throw it at him. This is pick up boulders and throw it on him disfiguring with every single blow, parts of his body being crushed with every stone. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Is that guy important? Kind of important, right? They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And saying this, he fell asleep. Here's the last thing I want you to understand, all right? Not only does service, what gets us showing our Christian commitment, not only that ordinary Christians are what God uses, but listen to this, the will of God sometimes in your life will be painful. This is ultimately painful for Stephen. The reason Stephen's such an important story, he's the first martyr in the entire New Testament, but also because of this. It's because of his death that God uses to begin to prick the heart of a guy named Saul, Saul who would become the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. And the question is, are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to not get everything you want to see the cause of Christ advanced? We're praying that prayer that God would turn our affections towards him, that we would obey his spirit and that we would surrender to his mission. And my question to you is, have you done that? And is life about you or is it about following the direction of God, like Stephen? Let's pray together.